Hello and welcome to Spin Unspun, the podcast about leaders and leadership in the world of corporate affairs and corporate communications. I'm Damien Rees from Instinctive Partners, in conversation with the best and the brightest in corporate affairs, asking all the questions and discussing all the topics that really matter to people who shoulder the weighty responsibility for corporate reputation and effective communications. Today, we're discussing communications and the law. How do people in communications and reputation management work with our colleagues in the legal profession? Communications and corporate affairs professionals have always worked with lawyers, of course. However, there's no doubt it's happening a lot more, reflecting, I think, the increasingly complex and high-profile reputational challenges that companies and individuals face these days, often associated with sometimes difficult engagement I think it's fair to say, with audiences, including the media, regulators and policymakers, employees and, of course, customers. So joining me today to talk through this evolving relationship between lawyers and comms professionals, we have not one, but two experts from the legal world. First of all, Joe Sanders is here in the studio. Joe is a partner at Withers Worldwide, and she leads the firm's media and reputation team in London. Joe, great to see you. Thanks for coming in. Hi, Damien, and thank you very much for inviting us. You're welcome. And alongside Joe today is Tom Rudkin, a partner at Farrah & Co., who, like Joe, is a leading reputation, media, privacy, and information lawyer. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Thanks, Damien. Great to be here. We're also joined by my colleague, Katie Gabriel, an account director here, who I think it's fair to say, Katie, uh, you've worked on a goodly number of uh, reputation issues uh, involving the law and lawyers. Uh, welcome to the po podcast again. Thank you. It's a, a delight to be here on my second Spin and Spun uh, podcast episode. I think one burning question that a lot of people in comms will want to hear the answer to uh, in the first instance is <laughs> lawyers. Um, I mean, they're really just the people in the room to say... No, aren't they? I hope not. Um, they really shouldn't be. I, do you know, I actually can't think of a single circumstance where it's not possible to say anything at all. Mm. I would say, though, lawyers are probably instinctively fairly cautious people. Yes. And, you know, we're trained to look for all of the pitfalls. So that's probably why we have that perception. But I think... Once you've got a business that is facing some sort of reputational challenge or a reputational crisis, you're already into the territory of needing to balance risk. And the risk of saying nothing might well be greater than the risk of saying something. So I think just advice which says say nothing is not really good advice. Um, we might need to balance some other considerations so around making sure that we're not trampling on evidence or affecting anybody else's rights to privacy or reputation. But really, there's usually some way that you can craft something. So you're looking for a constructive relationship, I guess, with obviously the client, but the, the comms people. Absolutely. Um, you know, this should really work together, not be working against yeah. one another. So to that point, then, what is it that lawyers will bring to a situation like this, where we're, we're in a crisis or an issue, uh, we've got a very uh, uh, upset client, potentially. Um, you've got a bunch of comms people who are obviously overexcited, and you've got a bunch of lawyers who are very calm. Uh, what is it you bring? I, I mean, I think the main thing is lawyers are able to help the comms team and the client draw the line, both in terms of what a publisher might say about the client and also what the client themselves can say. Um, and there's also the ability to bring that understanding of what might be uh, taking place between editorial and in-house legal teams at publishers. I think there are two, two really key independent skill sets between comms and, and legal, and the advantage of having both is that you've got two sets of independent advisors bringing different perspectives, and I completely agree with what Joe has just said in terms of having a can-do attitude, having a constructive approach to these things, not always seeing the risk in everything and acting in a very cautious way. Sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes the risk is such that you can't go out and say something or there isn't really a strong case to stop something being published. But if, if you think creatively and constructively, you're likely to bring a lot to the table. I think the final thing I'd add on that is having a tailored approach is key. So a one-size-fits-all 
let's send a legal letter every time is not the right thing to do. Equally, there are times where that is the right approach and, and the media and others need to be held to account. How do lawyers and comms people work best together? What are some of the other attributes that, that you would pull out, Joe? I would say, you know, clients who really want the best advice should have both in the room. Um, these are complementary sets of skills and different perspectives. And, you know, they can both be uh, played together. So you might deploy one strategy, see how that develops. You may have another strategy that waits in the wings. And I think that, you know, you want everybody aligned behind the same objective. I mean, clients, whoever is sort of the, the, the client leading team needs to make sure that the communications and the lawyers understand what the what the business's main aim is but I think we play different roles so as I say it may be the the legal strategy will sit back and let the communicators go first and hopefully the legal strategy may be tool of last resort that's never needed but I think for a client who wants to understand the full picture you need to know what all of your possible options are. Mm. There are interesting ways where actually the legislation is kind of driving communicators and lawyers to actually start to get to know one another. You know, they should be in the offices next to one another, not, not knowing who each other are. Um, data protection legislation actually requires businesses in the instance of a data breach to tell affected data subjects certain things. Now, I as a lawyer can tell you what the things are you need to say, but I definitely don't think it should be the lawyers that are writing those communications. You know, that's the communicator's job. But that, you know, that's exactly where you need both to be working closely together. For those who are sort of listening, who are potentially new to the industry or haven't, you know, had the opportunity to work on something with a, with a, a set of lawyers, you know, what are some of the most typical scenarios where we might join up with people such as yourselves? I'd say the bread and butter is obviously the mainstream media list of 10 questions on a Friday afternoon, working out how you... Oh, that how happens to you as well, does it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It depends. I mean, we're sometimes brought in first and then you're sometimes brought in first, as you know, and then there's a, there's a run around to try and work out what the hell's going on at about three o'clock on a Friday afternoon with a, with a hard deadline. But that's, that is a, a scenario where we're very frequently brought in. And I think picking up on what both Joe and I have been saying, that it's absolutely key for both both the comms team and and the lawyers to be talking very closely, getting on top of the facts and then working out what the right strategy is, whether that's a communication strategy informed by legal advice or it's a legal letter going to the to the media organization to try and stop or change a story. Um, so that's really bread and butter. And then there's the follow on in terms of potential complaints about what's been published. And that, again, might be run through uh, the in-house comms or external comms person contacting someone in, in the editorial side. Or if it reaches a certain level, then we as lawyers may, may run that complaint. But there's a whole host of other scenarios, I think, dictated by just the, the level of content that's out there at the moment that means that we all work together a lot more. Um, litigation generally is one scenario where we, we work very frequently. And, and in, in that sense, it's, it's quite often a comm strategy being used to try and either gain leverage within litigation or try and present the client's case in a particular way. And the lawyers will largely be sitting in the background determining what can and can't be said and ensuring that nothing's done that might um, impact adversarially on the legal strategy. Joe's already touched on, on data breaches, which is definitely a, a scenario I see a lot of. And then I think there's the wider strategic cases where a client's under long-term uh, attack or there's a difficult crisis scenario that's playing out on an ongoing basis in different scenarios. And clearly there's going to be a, a, a communication strategy that's absolutely integral to that. But alongside that, we will quite often sit in the background potentially and then come above the parapet when something needs to be removed from online or some kind of formal action needs to be taken. But again, the lawyers are there to inform the strategy as well and provide a, an additional input. And I think um, that can be very helpful. And does the law pertaining to defamation, libel, etc., that you would normally associate with the print <coughs> industry or the broadcast industry, does that also apply in exactly the same way to the world of social media? Well, it does. The law is the same, 
but I think the way you might use it and the advice that you would give to clients about those things are very different. So, I mean, certainly in the social media space, I don't know about you, Tom, but I mean, I spend as much of my time trying to persuade clients not to do something legal and perhaps leave well alone than I do recommending action. I mean, especially, particularly the sort of the CEO who's had their sort of their own personal reputation maybe challenged on social media and, and there have been some um, trolling. Those sorts of judgment calls are rather different to the decision and the advice that you would make when you're dealing with um, commercial publishers. Yeah. So, for instance, you might have, you know, a member of the public who tweets something that is clearly defamatory about a chief executive or about a company almost certainly totally ignorant of the facts and all the rest of it. Um, can you realistically pursue that person in the same that you, in the same way you would a newspaper, for instance, if they'd done this, a similar thing? I mean, you can in principle. There, there'll be strategic considerations as to whether you do. So I've, I've had a number of scenarios where you receive a call saying that um, something terrible has been published about the client online and it turns out that the account's got three followers, <laughs> none of whom have any influence whatsoever. That's an extreme example, but it does happen. And generally the advice then is that you're going to create more damage by, um, by pursuing it. But in principle, yes. And, and on, on, in terms of how the law applies to social media, whilst an individual account holder will be treated in the same way as a media publisher, in the sense they're a direct publisher of, what, of, of what's on their account. The social media platforms are, are not immune in the same way that they are in the United States, where there's a, effectively a blanket immunity that applies to content hosts. Um, they have greater protections. So it, you, know, you need to factor that in if, for instance, you're thinking about going against, going against the platform. But, but I think you do have to think carefully, particularly against going particularly when potentially going against a member of the public, because you can, as, I'm, and, you, know, as you both will attest to, you can, you can make a bigger story out of it. Um, you can spend a lot of money and it can play out quite negatively uh, in, in the public domain. It often depends on the seriousness of what's being said and the credibility of whether anybody's likely to believe it. Mm. Um, and I think they're the sorts of factors that you'd want to look at really closely before deciding to pursue individuals I'm, I'm very cautious in that area but, uh, but people have been sued though successfully have they not for defamation on twitter i think they have right. yeah, yeah. there have been a few cases so it um, can be done if necessary it can i mean the the circumstances require that the publication has caused some serious harm um, so you're not going to do that over something which has reached only two or three people. But of course, on Twitter these days, there are lots of people who have huge followings. What's, mm. uh, what, what's a reasonable deadline? Uh, uh, I, I, the other day, a journalist came to us and said, oh, you've got four hours. And it was, you know, typically complicated and it was all this, that and the other. And you've got four hours. So I'll come up with the classic lawyer, <laughs> lawyer's answer. It all depends. Um, so the sorts of things you need to look at in that is, is there real urgency to the story? I mean, is there a real news imperative? Because, of course, in a lot of stories, um, there might be. This may be you know, perishable commodity and so on. But I also see a lot of those inquiries which say you've got four hours. Um, and quite often they're a try on. Um, I think we all know that that can happen. And you see circumstances where... It's obvious that a journalist may have been working on a story for a very long time and then might give sort of 24, 48 hours to respond. I mean, again, it depends on what the story is about. If the story is simple and it's the sort of thing where the client is very likely already to be familiar with the subject under discussion and is in a position to be able to respond in a short time, then a short time frame might be a reasonable one. But if the story is complex and is being raised for the first time. So these are novel facts that a client's got to go away and look into what the factual position is. And especially with big corporate clients, where it may, that may require speaking to lots of different people, might be away on holiday. You know, the deadline then needs to be something different to be reasonable. So I am going to move us on to a slightly more, I guess, extreme scenario where you have a client that wants to sue a media title. Um, what are the key considerations that you would talk them through in that in that instance? I mean, the first thing to say is that if a if a client wants to take legal action, they don't have to run off to court immediately. And the majority of 
cases tend to take place in correspondence. Very, very few in relative terms actually end up in court proceedings. But if you get to the point where you haven't been able to reach a satisfactory outcome through direct engagement with the media title or whoever it is, then obviously you look at the legal merits and work out how strong they are. Cost is obviously a consideration. Um, litigation is tends to be very, very expensive. Even to get a quick result, if you feel you've got a very strong case and you can get an early outcome, that's not going to be cheap. And whilst costs are recoverable in, in England, unlike in other jurisdictions, um, you're never going to get all your costs back, or it's unlikely you're going to get um, uh, all your costs back. Publicity is obviously something to take into consideration when it comes to litigation. Um, there are some some types of claims, some privacy claims and breach of confidence cases where there may be possibilities in terms of anonymity and or having parts of the proceedings kept confidential. But the, the starting point in litigation in this country is open justice, and it has to be quite exceptional to deviate from that. I think the, the client, and again, this is where the, the different skill sets should be talking to each other. What's the desired outcome? Um, because you might have a very angry client who wants to take action, but you need to think about, well, where's that going to get us to? What are the remedies we're going to get? Uh, so I think that's pretty crucial. And then um, there's the process of disclosure of documents, which as um, Rebecca Vardy found out in her case, can be quite a damaging process. So one of the things the client needs to think about is, you're likely going to have to disclose everything you hold that's potentially adverse to your position in the litigation. And that may not be entirely helpful, both from a publicity perspective and a, and a legal perspective. So I think that's, that's a point that we as lawyers are required to bring to the client's attention, but it's also a strategic consideration. And then I think, and we'll probably come on to this a bit later, but current perceptions of UK libel laws, slaps, etc., are a factor that people are increasingly taking into account when deciding how to approach a case like the cases like the ones we're talking about. But if 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 I a client, if I'm the client and I decide I am going to um, get my lawyers to send a letter of complaint to a journalist, is that not in effect beginning a process that ultimately could end up in court and that's what the journalist is thinking uh, it, i totally accept that um most in most cases you don't want to go there but ultimately don't you have to be willing to as a client as the as the complainant don't you have to be ultimately willing to go to court before you start the process with, with a lawyer or not i i think if you send a legal letter asking for amendments or removal or some kind of outcome and it's done in a way that doesn't threaten litigation which which can be the case you don't need to outright threaten litigation in sending a legal letter i don't think you're committing yourself to going down that road once you send a formal what's called pre-action letter which which comes under the court procedure rules and is framed as a a formal letter and you say if you don't do xyz we're going to go off to court then i think you're you're really committing yourself to doing that or at least it doesn't look credible if you then don't do it if they don't um if if whoever's on the other side doesn't agree to what you're asking for so i think there are stages post publication that you can go through before you're at the point where you're really starting that process yeah definitely i mean there are various different considerations i mean as tom said you might be complaining under one of the codes like the independent press standards organization code so you may not be raising litigation as an ultimate prospect at all. Um, and I think that there are, it's, it's not a sort of a one size fits all when you write the letters, because it does depend a lot on what the client's objective is. If it's a correction, because there is something in the article which is factually wrong, then obviously that's going to be a very different question if all they're asking for is that that fact is put right. If the journalist can also accept and can see perhaps some evidence which shows them that the fact is wrong, then they may be quite willing to um, negotiate a resolution there. And of course, that doesn't always need the lawyers to do that. Sometimes there are things, and you will know very well, sometimes there are things that the communications team may take up. And it may be that there's a discussion between the lawyers and the communicators about who's best place to ask for that. I guess if you are going to complain... And you are willing to go all the way, if necessary, and, and show that you are serious. Then you, you, you as the as the plaintiff, the complainant, you need to be able to show um, that 
any given publication has caused you harm reputationally but also financially does that matter or can it just be reputational damage and if you're going to claim that you you need to collect the evidence to prove that which often in a way funnily enough is helped by social media because that's a good way of showing that your reputation has been damaged hasn't it but you, my point being as you as you launch a complaint you need to start making sure that you've got the the ammo to back it up because you're going to have to prove it yeah exactly um i mean libel is slightly different in the sense that you don't generally have to show specific losses have been caused by the publication, unlike in a breach of contract case, for example. Um, so harm can be inferred from the circumstances, which might include the seriousness of the allegations, how widely they've been published, and any evidence of individuals or clients sort of abhorring the, the client that you're acting for. Companies do need to show, if they're the claimant, do need to show some kind of link between the allegations and, and a financial impact. But again, it's not quite as specific as showing this particular financial loss was caused by the publication. It's it's a little less specific than that, but you do have to demonstrate a, a, a financial link. Um, and I think for that reason, companies have more of a challenge if they're the claimant, um, because you have got to show that kind of link between trade and the publication, but it's not that the threshold is not quite as high as, as really going down into the detail of the finances. If you can do that, then great. But if you can show that it's inevitable that financial loss, serious financial loss of some sort would have been caused, then then you're going to you're going to have a good chance of getting over the threshold. But you're right that companies do need to look to start to gather that evidence immediately after something's appeared. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's what you were saying earlier about what's the role of the lawyers. Obviously, that's one of the things is to say, start looking, start looking for the evidence because you need to know whether it's actually caused that sort of financial loss or not. And it may be that it's not people that are directly involved with these sorts of issues at the company. So it may be the people who are in customer services who are answering the phone, who are getting people saying, I want to cancel my order or I don't want to go ahead with this anymore. That's, you know, that's the, the real gold dust evidence. But unless somebody, of course, tells them that they need to collect it, then it may be lost. Um, similarly, you know, I think that, as you say, there are the sort of the social media posts, but it is also people who say they don't want to go ahead with projects, projects that may now become more difficult. And also company expenditure as well, where a lot more time and resources and perhaps um, additional work is now needed to be able to carry on with a project that was otherwise going to come to fruition. So all of those, there are lots of different ways you can look at it. But of course, it's really important that you actually have to gather that evidence. I often find that companies say that reputation is their most valuable asset but often what's best advice for reputation purposes may not in my experience always carry the support from the legal team uh, when dealing with an issue for example apologizing for something that's gone wrong um, how do we resolve these uh, these conflicts because it's not always it can't always be that comms people and lawyers have the same advice. We have conflicting advice sometimes, don't we? We do. Uh, and it's important, I think, not to adopt on either side blanket pr principles and rules. So never, never apologising is not necessarily a rule that you want to adhere to. There might be good reasons why you don't want to apologise. What might um, those be? Well, I think, you know, a wholesale admission of liability in an apology could create problems if there's going to be litigation down the line. But equally, the, the litigation that's likely to ensue may be one in which a settlement is inevitable. So some of the, um, I'm going to take a really extreme example, historic abuse cases, which are probably not, not necessarily the subject of this podcast, but um, those are the kind of scenarios where you might apologize very early if it's clear that something has taken place. And it's fairly inevitable that the conversation in any prospective litigation is going to be around settlement and resolution rather than defending the claim to the hilt. I think that one of the other things that's really important to do is set, set the legal risks and strategy and considerations alongside what the best reputation strategy will be and assess where the conflicts between those might be and then have a really frank conversation about how best to resolve them. And then it becomes a case of weighing up 
what's the legal downside of adopting a strategy that's best for the reputation of the company and how how important is it that that reputation strategy is is followed and once you do that i think you can i think you can generally get to a point where if you don't agree everyone can find a resolution that they're broadly comfortable with uh, and as i say the 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 key, and we've discussed this earlier, the key from the lawyer's perspective is to adopt a constructive approach and appreciate that it's not simply about being able to successfully ward off a claim or, or win a claim. There are much wider considerations than that that need to be taken into account. And that, that comes back to the question you asked me right at the beginning, which is, you know, is the lawyer always going to say no? I would really hope not. I mean, it is that question of balancing risk. You cannot have a corporate representative who's being put up to respond in you know sometimes very extreme crisis situation and not give a human apology um it, it is sometimes necessary if something has gone wrong there should be nothing wrong with saying we are sorry that this thing happened now it may be necessary to say look we're still looking into it we don't understand yet all of the facts behind it but nonetheless, that doesn't stop you saying if something bad has happened, mm. saying sorry should not be something that's stymied by lawyers. Slightly uh, different question now, but sometimes what's best for a company's reputation and obviously what's best for an individual CEO, um, you know, it might not align. How are there ways in which those conflicts can be resolved? That's a really good point. And you know, a company can only act through its directors or through its officers. It obviously has no, no other way of doing anything other than the people who run that business. But they are obliged to act in the company's best interests. That's mm. their um, job. And you can see situations where, of course, those things might um, come into conflict with one another. And the most obvious situation is where you've got some investigation into some potential wrongdoing at a board level. I think when that happens, it's very important that any, uh, especially internal communications function is alive to seeing that the suggestions that are being made, the direction that people want to take the statements and responses in is perhaps more driven by personality than by business imperative. And I think if you're getting into that territory, it is right that People push back against that. Now, the right way to deal with that situation is then for whoever the individual is, so say in your example, it's the CEO, for them to have separate representation. Because really, it may you may reach a point where the company spokesperson can't be their spokesperson because you may want to say different things about that situation. And so then the best thing would be for the CEO to have his own team, that may be his own communications team, it might be his own lawyer. If it's an investigation situation, probably will have a lawyer. Um, and, you know, the relationship between the company spokesperson and the, those representing the CEO can still be a constructive one, um, but they are then mindful of their own respective positions and you don't then have that conflict with the company feeling like they're being steered down a, a route which is not necessarily in the company's best interests. And hopefully a, a corporate a, a company would have a corporate structure in place that would allow for a degree of governance. So presumably you also have the opportunity if you feel it necessary as, a, as an advisor, be it a, a legal advisor or a comms advisor, to go and talk to... The chair, for yeah, instance. Exactly. And or other board directors, you know, I mean, it should be if it's an issue which is personal to somebody at a senior level, then really they should be thinking about recusing themselves from ad advising and conducting the business's response to that matter anyway. And then somebody else should be being appointed who can give instructions to the comms team or external advisors on behalf of the business that isn't the person who's directly affected. Mm. You often hear um, the media cite public interest uh, as, a, as a common justification for publishing information which the client feels is private or is irrelevant or isn't new um, and is unnecessary. Um, I, I mean, what are, the, what are the limits of the public interest justification? Because the media do use it pretty much as a sort of blanket justification as, or even the justification of last resort. Yeah, it, it is quite a grey area. I mean, what it's not is 
something that's just interesting to the public, like the private life of someone. So an affair between two celebrities, unless there's some other reason why that should be made public, which is genuine, genuinely of, in, of public interest, is not generally going to... It may be interesting to the public. It might be interesting <laughs> to the public, exactly, exactly. Um, and there's been many a judge who've actually, who's actually used that phrase. Um, I think it, it's, it's quite a low threshold in terms of what might be of public interest. The more, the more challenging question is where does the balance lie between the right to privacy or the right not to be defamed and the public interest in something being, made, in something being disseminated to a readership or the, or the wider public. And in a case of private information, you, you, kinda, you have a two-stage test. So you ask, well, is the, is the information private? And then if it is private, if it relates to someone's family life or, or children, is there some kind of overriding reason why that should nevertheless be made public? And it's going to be really fact specific. So we don't have in the UK a framework which says that freedom of expression trumps right to privacy or right to reputation, which is different to the US where there's a very strong freedom of expression right that's enshrined in their constitution. It's, it's largely an objective test that the court will look at the facts and decide whether or not they think the interest in people being having access to a certain piece of information overrides the right to privacy or the right um, right not to be um, have your privacy infringed. It's slightly different between that privacy question and, and when you've got a libel case. So in a libel case, if a, if a publisher is seeking to argue that uh, they've got a public interest defence. They'll need to show that they've undertaken very detailed inquiries or reasonable inquiries, but but those will have to be quite detailed. And they'll generally include things like putting the information to the person or company who's who's going to be under attack and taking into account their position. On the on the privacy side, it's much more about the nature of the information and whether or not that should be made public. But there's no there's no kind of hard and fast rule. You have to look very carefully at the facts and I think what I would say is that the the balance recently has gone more towards the right to privacy so as I say there's no there's no hard and fast rule they're meant to be balancing rights born out of um of the of the human rights act and European convention on human rights but there have been some trends that have suggested that um you know that that balance has moved slightly towards privacy and the media the media understand me not happy about that the other thing to bear in mind is that you have to show that the public interest is actually in the publication of that specific information. And it's really quite a detailed question. It's not just that there's public interest in this subject matter generally. It's about is there public interest in the publication of this information about this particular... And so the media have to be able to justify that, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. and 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 I think that that's actually okay. quite an important distinction. The other thing I would say about public interest is you often hear that public interest journalism is being threatened quite a lot and I don't necessarily accept that that's right because as you can see from what Tom was saying the defense of public interest is is built in to the law whether it be privacy whether it be reputation and libel in both cases if the publication is truly in the public interest, then the law allows that publication. That is not prohibited. And so really the debate is around what is public interest? And I think that is where, obviously, journalists, publishers may not agree with some of the decisions that courts have made around what's in, what's in the public interest. For example, one of the areas which um, in recent years has had a lot of attention is the right of privacy of suspects in investigations before they're charged with any crime. And the court held that that was something in which an individual has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Now, that has met with a lot of opposition from journalists who feel that that's encroaching on their ability to report on criminal investigations. But I think that, as ever, that's not a... It's, it's not a blanket situation. And for example, the court was very clear to say if it's a situation where the police, for example, want to appeal for other witnesses 
or there is an overriding public interest in saying that this investigation is ongoing before somebody's charged, then that would make a difference. Um, But generally, the proposition is the starting point is now said to be that there is privacy before somebody is charged with a crime. And then once it is before the court, there is a charge, then obviously it becomes very much a public process and there is reporting throughout then on criminal, criminal trials. So on the topic of, of freedom of speech and having a, a free press, um, there has been quite a lot of noise in the media at the moment, or not in the media, but from the media, um, about the threat of slap actions, which for the purpose of listeners is a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Would you agree with that argument? Um, you know, are they a threat to, to free speech or would you disagree? I think that I think one of the first things to do is define what a slap is because the term gets thrown around a lot and I'm not sure I'm not sure it's really ever been defined properly but mm. put at its simplest I think the best way of describing it is an abusive use of the law or an abusive attempt to use the law to suppress public interest discussion and journalism and academia my it's a really difficult one because there are cases which um one can point to on the on the face of it and say, oh, that does look like a pretty strange use of the law. I'm not going to use an English example, um, partly because I don't want to offend anyone, but I, there was a story at the weekend about Andrew Tate mm. threatening to sue one of his accusers in defamation in the US. And one of the grounds on which he was purporting to do that was that she'd made a complaint to the police. I think there were others, there were, to be fair, other um, allegations, difficult to be fair to Andrew Tate, but um, there, are, there, are, there are other scenarios. And he denies that it was used for intimidatory purposes. But on its face, trying to sue someone who's accused an individual of sexual assault for making a complaint to the police before that process has ended looks like a pretty intimidatory use of the law to try and potentially suppress not only public interest journalism, but more to the point in that case, a criminal investigation. So, and there are there there is the odd example in in this jurisdiction as well. Having said that, I think there are other cases that have been described as slaps, which, when you actually look at them, there's a, in fact been a, a judgment in favour of the person bringing the claim. So, I think we have to put that into context. <laughs> we also have to appreciate the political context, um, which is that the discussion began in earnest around the time of the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Um, And again, there are a number of sanctioned individuals who have been represented by lawyers in this country. Um, But it's not, I I just don't think it's quite as straightforward as it's been made out to be. So there may be an issue there, whether it's as serious an issue as has been presented and whether it's really widespread. I have to say I'm sceptical and I have the benefit of acting on both sides on occasion. I haven't seen a huge amount of it when acting Um, for the publishers that we act for. Mm. I think it's a worthy discussion, but I think we need to be careful not to rush into conclusions and in particular to rush into legislation or changes to the law that suppress the ability to defend one's reputation. And some of the the proponents of this idea, um, particularly politicians, are suggesting changes to the law that I think would have that negative impact. It won't surprise you I have something to say on this subject as well. Um, I mean, I think we would all want to guard against the use of the law in an abusive way and to see it used as an abuse of power. And I don't think that media law and information law is any different to any other area of the law. There are examples of abusive litigation happening in employment. There are examples of abusive litigation happening in immigration. And it's wrong no matter where it happens. So I think that that's obviously right. Our regulator gave guidance at the beginning of last year, which actually applied to conduct in all forms of disputes about not uh, pursuing unmeritorious claims. Now, like I say, I don't think it's in a claimant's interest to do that either. But, you know, that that is not sector specific. That's not unique to the media. Now, the argument in the media has been, as Tom says, told through a very particular prism. And I think that that's 
unhelpfully clouded the debate. And we've not seen much discussion of situations where the balance of power lies very much the other way. And I see lots of examples of that where individuals, whether they be individuals in business or individuals in their private life, are the recipients of those Friday afternoon emails that we talked about earlier. And they may never have been in that situation ever in their lives before. They may have never come across any um, media engagement because it's just not the world that they exist in. And for them, an email from a journalist is extremely intimidatory. Mm. That is a very vulnerable place to be. And those emails, often in the tone in which they are sent, um, warn of very damaging, sometimes factually wrong allegations about to be made to a potentially global audience. Now, I don't think in those circumstances it is wrong for those individuals to say, I want a lawyer in my corner to help guide me through whether what is happening to me now is fair or not. And what I would be very, very reluctant to see is any legislation or intervention which stopped people who are in a vulnerable situation facing serious allegations from the media not being able to get access to their own advice to help them navigate that situation. And, and moreover, I don't think anybody would really want that to happen either, but the risk is that that's the story that's not being told. Can I just ask you about leaks? Um, I used to enjoy leaks when I was a journalist. Um, um, but I know it drives companies completely insane. Um, um, so if a, if a journalist has got some leaked information, what, what can a company do, if anything, uh, to either stop publication or persuade the, uh, the, the newspaper uh, or program that it would be wrong, damaging, unethical, misleading, whatever, for, for that information to be uh, used. And I have seen in the past companies claim that your leaked information has been stolen and therefore you can't use it, which I think from memory we always ignored that one. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe we should, I don't know. Um, but anyway, yes, how do you stop a leak? It is really important to consider very quickly whether what um, a journalist has is something that they should have. Um, it There is a window in which if the information is confidential and has been unlawfully disclosed to a journalist that you can say you should not have this information going back to our earlier point, there is no public interest in its disclosure and therefore I will go to court if needs be and say you should not use that information. Now, there are obviously sort of different limbs to that. First of all, it needs to be information which is of a confidential nature. So if it's already out there everywhere, well, that ship has sailed. But if the information is truly confidential, it was protected as such and it has been, for example, stolen, the product of a hack of course, these days, information theft is much more common than it used to be. It used to be the case perhaps you know, 20 years ago when I started that people talked about going through bins. Um, you don't need to go through somebody's bin anymore because these days um, there are much more sophisticated, but I think in practice much easier ways of, of unlawful information gathering. So has the information been obtained in unlawful circumstances? And if it has, and there is no public interest in its disclosure, then that is something you can stop. So it's extremely important for communications teams when they get those kind of inquiries to not have that sort of, oh, well, they've got it already, there's probably nothing we can do, and therefore start engaging on dealing with the substance of what the questions are without turning our mind to the question of, should they have it at all, and could we stop it? Now, of course, it might be a situation where you say, well, this has been unlawfully obtained, it was confidential information, but you know what, going to court to get an injunction is the last thing we want to do. And you may not pursue that route, may not be the right advice to pursue that route. But you at least want to know that it was an option before you started engaging on the substance of the questions. Because once you are also answering the information that was, that was put to you, then effectively you're waiving your opportunity to do that. Because you can't later say this is confidential because you've now voluntarily put information in response. So it's something that has to happen right at the beginning if you're going to say and assert this information is confidential and shouldn't be 
used and and it's an important tool. There have been some important examples. So a number of years ago, a a hedge fund obtained uh, an injunction against Reuters for uh, information that had been passed to them, which was confidential in circumstances where it should not have been disclosed to them. And there was a really interesting debate around the nature, again, of public interest. And this was um, the argument essentially put forward by Reuters was that there was public interest generally in understanding the operations of hedge funds. Hedge funds are um, normally conducted in, in, they said, quite a secretive manner. And this was lifting the lid effectively on how a hedge fund worked. What was really important was there was nothing in the document which disclosed any form of wrongdoing. There was no impropriety. It was simply a a document that that was confidential and contained quite a lot of business sensitive information and the court said there is real public interest in businesses being allowed to do some things confidentially there is there is public interest in that too because that affects for example stability of the markets um and those are real valid considerations as well so there are circumstances where the protection of confidential information is also important and there's such a drive these days to transparency, everything being put out in the open, that I think it's easy to forget that it is also sometimes important that things can happen confidentially. And as I say, market considerations are one very real one. Um, but there are, there are others. And I think, talked earlier about investigations, there are real reasons why um, sometimes where there is no public interest, there should be a window to allow things to develop without there necessarily being public scrutiny. And if we reach a point where there should be public scrutiny, then, of course, the position will change. Let me just ask you about injunctions, because quite often clients will say, well, hang on, can't we get an injunction to stop this? Is that realistic? Um, Lawyer's answer, it depends. Um, If you are talking about the publication of false information. So if a, if a client is saying, but this thing that they want to say about me is simply untrue, can I stop that? Then the answer to that is no, because you can't get an injunction in libel. The law of libel says that your remedy lies in suing and having vindication afterwards. And that's a free speech reason, really, to stop uh, publications being stymied simply because um, somebody says something is 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 false. So you can't get an injunction in libel. Where you can get an injunction is if the nature of the information that's under examination is either confidential or is private. And in both of those situations, you can seek an injunction. Now, that's why most of the cases that we can all think of for privacy injunctions related to um, extramarital affairs, sexual misbehavior, um, that type of thing, which I think has rather trivialized um, the perception of an injunction. In, in the corporate world, one hopes that that's probably not so much why you're looking at an injunction. And there it is more likely to relate to the theft of confidential information. So there have been several cases uh, recently in circumstances where a business which is a custodian of other people's information and has been hacked have gone to court to get protective injunctions over the misuse of the stolen information. So that's quite a valuable use of an injunction, which is obviously a very different one to the nature of um, footballers' misdeeds of Mm. a number of years ago. So we we don't get super injunctions anymore? Not really. The only remaining example where you might get a super injunction is perhaps in a blackmail situation where there is a real concern about tipping off the defendant to carry out the the unlawful behaviour that they have threatened. But that's a very specific set of circumstances. I mean, the term super injunction was widely misused at the time. Yes, I mean, at the time it meant an injunction that the media couldn't even report about exactly. the fact there is an injunction. Well, Damien, you knew the precise definition of a super yes. injunction. We, we saw it misused a lot where people just meant an injunction which yeah. restrained the publication of some information. But yes, super injunction meant that the court had granted an injunction and you couldn't even say that there was an injunction. Now that's pretty much gone. Um, the courts decided rightly, I think, that there was much greater public interest in transparency of, the, of, of open justice and that the open justice arguments meant that really cases needed to be reported on. Um, A slightly different uh, scenario, which we are sometimes presented with by clients, is the sort of possibility of the removal of historic 
content. Um, I've had it, for instance, where an individual Googles their name and um, you know a, a piece of material flags up quite quickly online and they think it's based off an inaccuracy. Um, so is, is there a real thing in the right to be forgotten or, or not? So Katie, the, the example you've given is the classic one, which is the Google yeah. search result. Yeah. Wanted to get something, <laughs> wanted to eliminate one's internet history. But the good news is that there are ways of doing that and the law facilitates that. And it's largely been derived from data protection laws, which I don't think anyone when they first came up with data protection law really envisaged it as a means of protecting reputation. It was more about the way in which organizations hold, process, keep data secure. But it's become a very helpful tool. I think the key, the one key thing to remember is that it's a right of the individual rather than the right of an organization. So it's a personal right. But if you can, as an individual, demonstrate that historic content is inaccurate or is no longer relevant for, and again, coming back to the concept of public interest, that would be one factor, but no longer relevant for the purposes that it was originally produced, then there is a justification for arguing that that information should no longer be available. It's pretty straightforward if you can show something's inaccurate. The more nuanced discussion is around, is it relevant any longer? And that comes back to a question of what's the level of prejudice being caused by the ongoing availability of the information when you balance that against the ongoing right for the public to be aware of it. And that's going to be very fact specific. But there are there have been quite a number of cases, and we often advise on them, where something took place 10 years ago, the person about whom it was published is doing something completely different now. It's not relevant to their present position professionally or personally. And in that sort of situation, you've got a pretty strong basis on which to say it should be removed. Uh, the only thing I would say is that there's a difference between having a search result removed and having it removed at source. So you can reduce the visibility of content by having search results removed by Google if you want to have it removed entirely, you need to go to the, the publisher, the direct publisher, and try and get them to remove it. Joe, Tom, Katie, thanks so much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts. It's been very enlightening. Uh, you've been listening to Spin Unspun, the podcast from Instinctive Partners about corporate affairs and corporate communications with myself, Damien Rees, and my co-host today, Katie Gabriel, Katie, thanks for joining me once again. Our guests today have been Joe Sanders, a partner from Withers Worldwide, and Tom Rudkin, partner at Farrah & Co. Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for coming in. Join us again uh, for the next episode of Spin Unspun. Uh, details at instinctive.com. Find us on social media, on the usual channels. And if you'd like to get in touch about Spin Unspun, just drop me a line Damien.Reese at instinctive.com.